Shalom, I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson. Welcome to this week's Kadima. And I wish to share a few moments on criticism. Numbers 12, starting at verse 1, says, Miriam and Aaron began criticizing Moses on account of the Ethiopian woman he had married, for he had, in fact, married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Is it true that Adonai has only spoken with Moses? Hasn't he spoken with us too? Adonai heard them. Now this man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone on earth. And suddenly Adonai told Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tent of meeting. The three of them went out. Adonai came down on a column of cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent. He summoned Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. He said, Listen to what I say. When there is a prophet among you, I, Adonai, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But it isn't that way with my servant Moses. He's the only one who is faithful in my entire household. With him I speak face to face and clearly, not in riddles. He sees the image of Adonai. So why weren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moshe? The anger of Adonai flared up against them and he left. But when the cloud was removed from above the tent, Miriam had Zaharatz as white as snow. Aaron looked at Miriam and she was as white as snow. And Aaron said to Moshe, Oh, my Lord, please don't punish us for this sin we committed so foolishly. Please don't let her be like a stillborn baby with its body half eaten away when it comes out of its mother's womb. Moses cried to Adonai, Oh, God, I beg you, please heal her. Adonai answered Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she hide herself in shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back in. There are two absolute truths you can count on as a leader. One, you'll be criticized. And two, criticism always changes you. As a leader, you can bank on two truths. You'll be criticized, and criticism always changes you. People that are unhappy will attack the point or the leader, and the issues usually aren't about the leader. Moses' own family attacked him here, and let's look at how Moses and God deals with this. First of all, verse 3 says he was a humble man. You have to maintain your humility in this. I've shared this in in previous podcasts. You have to give up your right in being wronged. You have to face the criticism squarely. In verse 4, Adonai told Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out here. You've got to look right at it. People don't like confrontation. However, as a leader, you have to overcome this and face that criticism squarely. You also have to be specific about the issue. In verses 5 through 8, the Lord says specifically to them, listen, I speak with him, Moses, my servant, face to face. How is it that you weren't afraid to come out and lash out against my anointed one? Then you always have to lay out the consequences. Verse 9 and 10, the Lord says exactly what he's going to do. He was angry, but when the cloud was removed, Miriam was afflicted. She was being punished for her speaking out against her brother. You always have to pray for the criticizers, verses 12 and 13. As a matter of fact, Yeshua says the same exact thing, that you have to pray for your enemies. In verses 12 and 13, Aaron begs Moses, and Moses cries out and intercedes on her behalf. And then verse 14, they're restored if it's appropriate. She was sent outside the camp for seven days, and then she was brought back in. So you have to confront this squarely. You have to care front. You have to address it directly. It can't go on back and forth because criticism will eventually lead to gossiping and slander and will eventually lead to congregation splits. 
So it's got to be dealt with up front, and we've got to overcome the fear of confrontation if we want strong, healthy congregations or any other activity in which you're a leader. There's a few other things that we have to consider here. We have to understand the difference between constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Constructive criticism is adding uh, those tools necessary to help you overcome an issue. When we first got on the radio, and I love sharing this story, it always makes me smile, but our first broadcast is 15 years ago, I said Revelations for the book of Revelations rather than saying Revelation. We had a phone call that very day, as soon as the broadcast was over. Now, the person wasn't very pleasant, and he asked to speak to me, and he says, hey, I just heard you on the radio. I said, oh, you did? He's like, "Uh, you sound like a buffoon because you say Revelations. Read the book. It says Revelation, and he hung up the phone. And, uh, and of course, I was a little red-faced, but you know what? He was right. He could have presented that a little better, but he was right. It was constructive criticism. It's not Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. I've never forgotten that moment. But destructive criticism, what do we mean by that? Well, destructive criticism is meant to tear someone down. It's someone either, again, gossiping or slandering, just saying, hey, that person, he's horrible. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That person's a lousy speaker. How would you resolve that? There's no constructive criticism in that. What we call that is destructive criticism is just dragging that person down. We also have to look beyond the words of the critic. Leaders must mostly remain silent. You can't address these things publicly. It's the hardest thing, especially if there's criticism or if there's something happening within your organization or within your congregation, because as the leader, we're held by the same laws that we have in the medical field, the HIPAA regulations, that uh, there's confidentiality. It's like an attorney. I can't talk about things, personal issues with people in the congregation. And so sometimes people think you're not doing anything. They don't think you're involved and they start grumbling. They start being critical. And sometimes you just have to remain silent and give up your right in being wrong. You can pull that person in to talk to them privately, but you don't have to reveal the details of the issue. You just have to rebuke the person for the criticism and reveal to them that, hey, you can't talk about this because we're maintaining confidentiality in conversations with congregates. You also have to guard your own attitude toward the critic. What you don't want to do is be drawn down into the same activity they are doing. If they're criticizing you, then you start criticizing them, and then it just escalates, and there's no resolve to this. You have to keep yourself in spiritual shape. You have to associate with people of faith who can hold you accountable as you hold them accountable. You have to have a fear of influence around you who will speak truth to you. There's a lot of ministries, a lot of leaders that that get themselves inside a bubble, and they're no longer connected to reality. People won't speak truth to them. People around them will only speak what that person wants to hear. We see this a lot in Hollywood who become out of touch with reality. You have to have solid people around you, and this isn't always friends, but you have to have a solid group of people around you that are faithful, that are trustworthy, that pray and intercede for you, but who will also speak truth to you whether you want to hear that truth or not. You have to wait for the time to prove the critic wrong. Sometimes you just have to remain silent. They don't like a decision you made. They don't like the direction a congregation is going. But if you're hearing from God and you're following God, then time will prove you being the correct choices you made in that decision. As Rabitzin says, time will resolve all things. Time is your best friend. Time will tell you all that you need to know. Some things just have to gestate for a while. Time will prove the critic wrong. And you have to concentrate on the mission, change the mistakes. So often criticism comes, and it's not changing what we're doing, but we can change and adapt how we're doing it through constructive criticism and improve what we're doing. 
I can tell you as a ministry, we don't remain static. We are habitually changing everything that we do from the processes we do to how we do it, to the platform, to the content. We are always on the mission, but we are always changing and improving to the best of our ability. Now, I want to look at a few examples here we have over time, uh, scripturally, that talk about criticism and bring some insight to this. The first I want to talk about is Joseph. Joseph who came from a dysfunctional family, so much so his brothers had such a high distaste for him that they feigned his death and sold him as a slave. He was eventually purchased by Potiphar in Genesis 39, and his master recognized Joseph's abilities and appointed him over his entire household. However, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, Potiphar's wife brought false sexual charges against Joseph. She tried to seduce him, and Joseph didn't do it. He felt, how can I perpetrate this great evil and sin against God in verse 9 of Genesis 39? Joseph did not want to have an immoral relationship because it would have been the end of him. It would have been easy to rationalize given that he was Potiphar's slave, uh, but a good leader has to behave in a moral, ethical way and do the right thing even if no person is watching and there's no way of getting caught. It was an improper advance by Potiphar's wife Joseph remained an honorable, loyal servant, and he didn't submit to it. However, it did result in him being sent to jail because she made false sexual assault charges against him. Joseph proved that he had matured and was developing the moral character to become a leader. But Joseph's talent was the supernatural ability to interpret dreams. He never attributed this extraordinary capability to himself. When he was in prison, two of Pharaoh's servants, a butler and a baker, were also in prison with him. Joseph, who cared about people, asked why they were appeared to be so downcast, and they told him that they had a dream, but no one could interpret it for them. Joseph's reply to them in Genesis 40, verse 8 was, Behold, interpretations belong to God. Please recount it to me. And some two days later, Pharaoh had Joseph brought to the palace and asked Joseph to interpret his dream. So it's through the servants, and if you recall, one went back to service of the Pharaoh, the other one lost his life. But two years, and he said, Remember me for this. But two years later, they remembered Pharaoh had a dream that couldn't be interpreted. So the, the servant remembered, had Joseph brought to the palace and asked Joseph to interpret the dream. He mentioned to Joseph that he heard of his ability to interpret dreams. Joseph's reply in verse 16 of Genesis 41 was, it is beyond me, it is God who will respond regarding Pharaoh's welfare. An effective leader must be self-confident and sure of himself or herself. Arrogance, however, gets in the way of effective leadership. You've got to remain humble, like the example we had with Moses and Miriam. Joseph knew with certainty that he would be able to interpret the dream, but he remained humble and took no credit for it, giving all the glory to God. Then, as we know, he was appointed leader over all of Egypt through this famine, seven years fat, seven years lean. Joseph's brothers, who had feigned his death, in a most horrible way, and sold him as a slave, then were sent to Egypt <laughs> so they could get grain, so they could survive the famine. Joseph had no interest in vengeance. He gave up his right in being wronged. Joseph tested his brothers to determine whether or not they had changed. Once he established that his half-brothers were treating his only full brother, Benjamin, properly, and indeed Judah offered himself as a slave in place of Benjamin, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. In Genesis 45, verse 15, it says, He kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. Joseph had no interest in avenging himself and made clear to them that he would take care of their entire families during the seven-year famine. Even when 
his father, Jacob, died. The brothers thought that Joseph might take vengeance on them. Joseph made clear to them that he had no intention of avenging the past wrongs. In Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20, he said, Fear not, for shall I then take God's place? Although you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. A good leader is not concerned with avenging slights to his honor or her honor. Rather, they care about what's best for the entire organization and will overlook personal slights and destructive criticism. Individuals who spend their days trying to get even don't make upright and righteous people, and they're not suitable leaders. Let's look at another one in Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. God desired that Israel would worship Adonai and Adonai be their king, but the people rebelled against Adonai and wanted a king, so Samuel anointed Saul, who was the first king of Israel, the combined kingdom, and he had the potential to be a great ruler. Saul was a man of great humility when he was first chosen by Shmuel, who demonstrated his courage and ability to lead people in defeating the invading Ammonites in 1 Samuel 10. Unfortunately, Saul had some severe character faults. He was insecure in himself, and he became insanely jealous of his son-in-law, David. After David killed Goliath, Saul overheard woman saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands in 1 Samuel 18. Saul was determined to kill David. And this manic, obsessive behavior caused him to wipe out an innocent town of priests for providing a fleeing David with food in 1 Samuel 22. Saul and three of his sons died in battle with the Philistines, a battle that Israel might have won with David's assistance and his men. David and his band were quite formidable and defeated the Amalekites who destroyed his town of Ziklag in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Jealousy is a dangerous trait for leaders, especially when it becomes obsessive like Saul. As noted, Saul was totally distracted from his mission as leader of Israel and king. Instead, he was driven to the brink of insanity by jealousy and pursuing to kill his son-in-law, David. David, on the other hand, was extremely loyal to Saul and extremely close to Saul's son, Jonathan. It says Jonathan was drawn to David by his character. They were like brothers. Getting even, especially for imagined slights, is something that leaders shouldn't indulge in. David knew, touch not thine anointed. Until his death, Saul was anointed to be king. The Lord had placed numerous situations where David could have avenged himself and removed Saul, and he would have been legally justified. Saul was trying to kill him, but David remained loyal and remained true to him until the day King Saul died. Leaders must motivate their followers. Seeking revenge for old slights, even when real, is not a way to inspire followers. On the contrary, retaliation is a way of sending a message to followers that you are small-minded and you are sore about criticism. Let's look at another one, David. King David was one of Israel's greatest kings. He was not only a profound worshiper, but he was a profound warrior, a poet, a psalmist. The story of David's affair with Bathsheba is well known, and David was punished for this transgression in 2 Samuel verses 11 and 12. David's mistake in the matter of Amnon and Tamar caused more problems for his kingdom than his affair with Bathsheba and almost resulted in the loss of his kingdom when his son Absalom revolted against him and took over the throne temporarily. Amnon was David's eldest son and in line for the throne. Amnon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar, and he raped her in 2 Samuel 13. David heard about this, and he was very angry, verse 21 of 2 Samuel 13, but David didn't punish or rebuke his son. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, was furious at what his half-brother Amnon had done, 
and he bided his time. Two years later, he arranged for Amnon's assassination, and eventually Absalom organized a rebellion against David and forced his father into exile. This is what I'm talking about habitually. When we have to confront situations in your congregation or your organization, it cannot fester. David's inability to bring correction to his children resulted in the death of his son Absalom, the death of his son Amnon, and he lost the kingdom to a revolt for a time and a season. This story indicates what might happen when injustices are covered up rather than dealt with honestly. Had David punished Amnon for what he did to Tamar, Absalom might have not felt the need to take the law into his own hands and seek his own vengeance. Moreover, he would have not lost respect for his father and wouldn't have had the audacity to rape his father's concubines and rebel against him. Leaders have to be scrupulous about justice and should not ignore injustices committed by subordinates, even if they are designated successors. There must be equality, justice, and truth in whatever you're doing. Criticism should be constructive, not destructive. You will always have criticism, but you have to act and be a strong leader or your congregation will split, your organization will fail, and you will not be successful. I pray this has brought some good issues to you today. I pray it sinks in and you become a better person and a better leader for the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.